All right. Hi, everybody. This is the second part of our interventions episode. We're so excited to be recording again. We've got lots of good feedback from you guys, and we're really excited to get into this. So today we're going to cover epidurals, C-sections, instrumental delivery, episiotomies, and a handful of other things. So we're just going to get started because we kind of had a lot of info to cover. So we're going to talk about epidurals first. And um, a definition of an epidural is an epidural is a procedure that involves injecting a medication, either an anesthetic or a steroid, into the space around your spinal nerves. An epidural works by injecting an anesthetic into the epidural space around your spine so that it can stop pain signals from traveling from your spine to your brain. The epidural space is filled with fluid and surrounds your spinal cord. Think of it as a liquid sleeve around your spinal cord. So I was really curious about like the process. So what happens when you receive an epidural is you'll be asked to sit down and lean forwards and lie on your or to lie on your side with your knees up close to your chest. And then you'll be given an injection of a local anesthetic to numb the skin where the epidural needle will be inserted. Then a needle is used to insert a fine plastic tube called an epidural catheter into the nerves around your spine. And then the needle is removed, but the catheter is left in your spine. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me shudder that I don't like needles. Um, So medications commonly used for an epidural are bupivacaine, chloroprocaine, or lidocaine. And they may be delivered in a combination with opioids or narcotics such as fentanyl or morphine in certain cases. And the difference of whether they'll give you the opioids or not is if you get a standard epidural or a walking epidural. Yeah, so let me kind of just explain what the difference between a standard and a walking epidural is. So... With a standard epidural, the needle doesn't, the needle, the epidural needle doesn't interact with the spinal fluid and it just stops like right outside the space, the, it's called the dura space. So it stops outside that and usually only local anesthetics are used and um, it's often described as like a heavy or a dead feeling in the legs. So that's the standard epidural. And in recent years, they've developed a walking epidural, which is a combined spinal epidural. And with a walking epidural, the epidural needle comes into contact with the fluid, which surrounds the spinal cord. So a walking epidural is where the opioids or narcotics are administered in combination with the local anesthetics. Um, And usually with a walking epidural, the mother still has some sensation and mobility in her legs. And may be able to change positions, but it's kind of misnamed because they'll likely not actually be able to walk or leave the bed. So I've had a few friends who have gotten a walking epidural and they're like, oh yeah, I could totally move around. But you just, you don't have the same range of motion that yeah. you would. But it's like a good option. It also is... Um, like obviously the combined spinal epidural is more intense than a standard epidural because it's literally interacting with your spinal fluid um and it's literally narcotics and opioids right right so that's something to keep in mind like if you if your family has a history with opioids or narcotics like that's something to keep in mind you might want to opt for a standard epidural or just talk to your provider or the anesthesiologist Um, about like what specific medications you'll be getting with your epidural yeah and depending on what type of epidural you get it can make it more difficult to push since you're numb and I just thought about this like yesterday I was like you know when you go to the dentist and you get a numbing shot in your mouth your muscles literally don't work you can't smile and so they're just drooping it's like the the same thing if you get an epidural your muscles that are supposed to help push your baby out aren't working they are not responsive they're not 100 percent. like they might be working some but they're not going to be 100 percent. like you can maybe get your like smile to twitch after you go to the (laughs) dentist but it's not full motion full motion and so that can make it a lot harder to push which can lead to more complications which we'll discuss later yeah totally do you want to go over the risks of an epidural Yeah, so the risks of an epidural include low blood pressure, loss of bladder control, which 
then leads to having a catheter be placed so that you can pee, which sounds so (laughs) annoying. Um, Itchy skin, nausea, inadequate pain relief, so you can, like, get the epidural and then feel everything still, which that would suck if you haven't prepared yeah i've had some friends say that it like only worked on one side or whatever yeah um headaches a severe headache can happen if the bag of fluid that surrounds your spine is accidentally punctured slow breathing and drowsiness temporary nerve damage lasting weeks or months infection or permanent nerve damage yeah so those risks kind of sound scary and some of them are but like i just want you to remember if you're opting for an epidural like you're dealing with your spinal fluid. This is not just, like, uh, the same as, like, a shot in your cheek. It's, yeah. like, like, you're dealing with some serious stuff there. And kind of going along with that, there may be some reasons that you actually can't have an epidural when you're in labor, which includes um, being on medication, which is, like, most notably blood thinners, which my friend Sarah actually is on blood thinners, and they have to, like, stop those and then induce her in a certain yeah. amount of time because she can't get an epidural while on those blood yeah. thinners. That's how my mother-in-law was with all of hers. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and then you also might not be able to get one if your blood work isn't just right. So you, you have to have a certain platelet count. You have to have, like, specific blood work to make. And if you don't, it can make the placement of an epidural riskier. Um you also might not be able to get one if the anesthesiologist can't find the right spot. So in like my case, I have scoliosis and so my spinal, my spine curves, which means they, they might not be able to get the right spot. So I'm likely not never going to even have the option to get an epidural because they need to like be specific in where they put it. Um, you might also not be able to receive an epidural if the anesthesiologist is unavailable or um, some hospital policies don't allow for epidurals before four centimeters or after 10 centimeters. So those labor restrictions, if you're at a certain point in your labor, you might not be able to get one. And also recently there have been in some parts of the U.S. in some parts of the world, there's been epidural medication shortages So in that case, um, you also might not be able to get one. Other things to know about receiving an epidural is most studies suggest that some babies will have breastfeeding difficulties. Um, Other studies suggest that a baby might experience respiratory depression, fetal malpositioning, and an increase in fetal heart rate variability, uh, all of which increase the need for forceps, vacuum, or cesarean deliveries, and episiotomies. And that's just because, like we said, the muscles aren't working the same as if you didn't have an epidural. And so, like, your muscles are, while you're in labor, your muscles are trying to get the baby into the right position, move them down the birth canal, and um, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of information about epidurals, and um, most of the like lots of women opt for an epidural because they're scared or like worried or nervous about the pain that they're going to feel. But there are alternate methods of pain relief. Like we used these in my birth and I'm sure you used them. I know you used them in your birth too, (laughs) but um, things that you can do to manage the pain and kind of relieve some of them is movement. So changing positions Um, You can do counter pressure, which I had pretty much during my entire labor. I had my mom and Zach like pushing on my back with a counter pressure. Yeah. Um, You used a TENS unit during your labor. Yeah, which basically did the same thing as counter pressure. It was just constantly and didn't wear out Adam or mom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You can also take um, a shower or a bath because the water can be really relieving of the pain and also doing breathing exercises. So there's other options out there. Like even if you're scared of the pain, it's not like you have to be in pain. Like there's things that you can do to relieve it. And for me, I felt like when I got, like when I ate or when I like took a drink of Powerade, I was just like so refreshed and I didn't even, I wasn't even really noticing the pain. So that was, that was something that you can also do is, eat and drink and labor and listen to music too like those are all good things to distract your brain 
Um, so what are your thoughts on epidurals? So I think everyone should prepare for a birth without an epidural in case you aren't able to get one for every reason, especially now with the epidural shortages, you should have the tools to labor without it. Labor can be really intense, and if you don't prepare your mind and your body, it won't be like the beautiful, enjoyable experience it can be. Um, and if you skip the epidural, your body is going to be filled with the natural oxytocin and endorphins, which are natural painkillers. And your body was made to birth without the synthetic pain medication, so... Um, and something that I read re recently was that moms that labor without medication, they actually forget the pain of labor quicker mm -hmm. than moms that labor with it medically, um, especially if you have a traumatic birth experience in your medicalized birth, then you're not going to forget about it. The way the brain is wired. Yeah. Yeah. And so with uh, unmedicated birth, you're brain just forgets about it mm -hmm. after I don't know how mm -hmm. long but like and I'm sure it's different for everyone yeah but. to me I'm like I mean right after I gave birth I was like that was fun let's do it yeah, again and same. so were you yeah. so it was like the natural hormones are like yeah. there for a reason yeah you can totally like ride on that natural high and it's yeah. it's amazing yeah and that actually kind of brings me to something that I also think about epidurals is that like epidurals interrupt the flow of hormones and those are the hormones that help labor feel less painful so like for me I won't be interrupting that flow <laughs> yeah but um what are some more of your thoughts on epidurals so um this is from the American Pregnancy Association but more than 50 percent of women give giving birth at hospitals use epidural anesthesia and in our culture, doctors and media and other women have convinced women that birth is too painful to handle without an epidural. And in reality, like you said, our bodies were made to do this and they were made to do it unmedicated. Totally. Um, when it comes to pain relief, for me, like the biggest thing to remember is when you increase oxytocin, you're going to increase pain relief. So this could be done during labor through laughing, kissing, music, eating your favorite food, like you said. Basically, the happier that you are during labor, the less you'll be focused on pain. Totally. So that's something to remember and like something to, especially if like maybe you are thinking about an epidural, but like you get to labor and you're like wanting to maybe go unmedicated you can do those things, and even even if you are planning on an epidural, you can do those things early on in labor, and um, that'll help the pain be relieved. Yeah. All right, now we're going to switch on to C-sections. Um, the definition is a cesarean delivery or C-section is used to deliver a baby through surgical incisions made in the abdomen and uterus. It is a major surgery. Um, so some stats about the cesarean rates, the World Health Organization has considered that the ideal rate for C-section births should be between 10 to 15 percent, um, but the CDC reports that the cesarean rate in the US, in U.S. hospitals is nearly 30 percent for low-risk women, and in contrast, the C-section rate for women under midwifery care is about 5 percent. So you can see that those numbers are like pretty far off and that's yeah. like i mean if the who is considering 10 to 15 percent appropriate and the actual rates are near 30 i think they're like over 30 yeah i think it's like 32 percent yeah that's doesn't really make sense like that that's a sign that something needs to change something's yeah. not going right especially for low-risk women mm -hmm. low-risk women should be having should not be having major surgery yeah in that many cases so right and there are cases when c-sections are life-saving like i totally agree with that and but just remember that many women would not have ended up needing a c-section if they hadn't opted for previous interventions like we talked about in the last episode the cascade of interventions yeah so kind of going into some of the possible side effects for the mother um there may be an infection in the incision site or in the uterus, um, excessive blood loss, reactions to anesthesia, blood clots, 
especially in the legs or pelvis, surgical injury, injury to the bladder or bowels, increased risks during future pregnancies, and increased risks, risks of the uterus tearing along the scar, scar line, which is called uterine rupture. And possible side effects for baby include cuts on the skin from inc- the incision, which is actually common. I d- when I read that, I was like, they actually like, <laughs> they don't have a method to not cut the baby. Um, and breathing difficulties, especially if delivered before 39 weeks, the, their lungs just aren't mature enough to, to breathe on their own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so C-sections increase the chances of future C-sections, most OBs do not recommend trying for a vaginal de- delivery after a previous C-section. Not all doctors or hospitals are equipped to handle a VBAC, which is vaginal birth after cesarean, and some simply choose not to do them. And in many cases, a vaginal birth after cesarean is t- a totally realistic option. Uterine rupture is the main concern for VBACs, but it's very rare. For women with one prior C-section, with a low transverse or horizontal incision, the risk of uterine rupture is less than 1%. Um, so I remember like when I first realized that your uterus can literally explode inside of you, <laughs> and I was honestly scared out of my mind, which was even more um, motivation for me to not get a C-section in yeah. the first place, because your uterus can't explode if you haven't already (laughs) had a c-section but um your chance for a successful v-back increases if you go into labor on your own so kind of the numbers here is the risk of uterine rupture slightly rises if you're induced so the average risk of uterine rupture is 0.7 percent and that goes up to 0.9 to 1 percent if you're induced with pitocin and 1.4 to 1.8 percent with prostaglandin so we're talking about really small numbers here but it's totally realistic if you want to try for a vaginal birth after you've had a c-section yeah you just need the right support and i know a lot of midwives have the tools to support you yeah yeah and if you or the baby are not in a health-threatening situation you can try laboring longer to see if the baby makes progress You can try changing positions, walking or squatting, just so you can avoid that C-section. Yeah, yeah. Um, Also something to keep in mind is that healing from a C-section is really different from healing from a vaginal birth. Your muscles will be weak from the incision and you'll have to keep your incision clean and dry. It is a major surgery. Yeah, yeah. So it's different for sure. And vaginal bleeding is normal after a C-section and can last four to six weeks, kind of the same as a vaginal birth um, because all the stuff in your uterus still has to come out. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, but it's typically not as heavy as after a vaginal delivery though. Yeah. Okay. So what are some of your thoughts about um, C-section? I totally believe that C-sections save lives. Um, Like I said before, Um, But it is unfortunate that the U.S. has such a high rate of C-sections that are elective or only happening because the cascade of interventions. And a C-section takes 45 minutes compared to a non-medical birth, which can take weeks if you start dilating long before you get into active labor. Like, or I mean, I had pre-labor contractions for three weeks before Royal was born, but So, of course, the doctors are going to push you to get a C-section. It's quicker, and they make more money from it. (laughs) Just being really transparent here, like 45 minutes versus at the least multiple hours. Yeah. And I've had surgery before, like, on my knee, and I know that healing from surgery is terrible. And so I totally choose, like, if I I am in the situation of can I choose to get a C-section or have a just birth then I'm gonna choose just birth yeah yeah um my my thoughts are pretty much the same like I'm just honestly really disappointed that the c-section rate is so high in the U.S. because the CDC and the WHO like they want it to be less and so it just makes me sad and mad to think that women are getting c-sections unnecessarily yeah like yeah that they're just getting them unnecessarily when they statistically could be not getting them. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so we're going to move on to assisted or instrumental delivery, and a definition of that is an assisted birth or an instrumental delivery is when forceps or a ventuo suction cup are used to help deliver the baby. So in a forceps delivery, a healthcare provider applies forceps, which is an instrument shaped like a large pair of spoons or salad tongs, to the baby's head to help guide the baby out of the birth canal. This is typically done during a contraction while the mother pushes. And then during a vacuum delivery, a healthcare provider applies the vacuum, which is a soft or rigid cup with a handle and a vacuum pump to the baby's head to help guide the baby out of the birth canal. This is also typically done during a contraction while the mother pushes. And before your provider suggests an instrumental assistance, you'll need to meet a few criteria, including like your cervix is already fully dilated, your membranes have ruptured, and your baby has descended into the birth canal head first. And so if you're to that point and your labor isn't progressing, then they want to use those. Yeah, then they might suggest these. Yeah. Um, they... Yeah, instrumental deliveries usually happen if you're pushing, but your labor isn't progressing. So if you've been pushing for hours and hours and hours and it's just not, like, progressing, that's what they might suggest. They might also be suggesting an instrumental delivery if your baby's heartbeat is showing a problem or if you have high blood pressure or heart disease. Um, Risks. And injury to the mother and to the baby are more likely with instrumental delivery. Um, I was I was reading through them through the risks and like maybe I was just like dramatic or being emotional, but like they were too hard for me to like type out and write down because it was like I was like this is so sad. I don't want this to happen to any mother or any baby. That's so sad. Yeah, which I mean like those are the facts and like that's what I probably should have included them in the episode because like that's what you need to know but um if you're really interested to know you can go google it and see what the risks um and injuries could be and you should be interested because you don't want those risks to happen yeah I know um and forceps delivery does increase your risk of a third and fourth degree tear um which involve the anal sphincter up by up to 7%, so it increases the risk by 7% that you'll tear all the way from your vagina down to your butthole. (laughs) Um, And that's just because they're forcing the baby out. Yeah, 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 and fitting an instrument into your... As well, yeah, and I I tore because Royal just had his tiny little fist up by his face. Yeah, and so using those things can increase your risk, just so you know. Um, you can avoid an instrumental delivery if you make sure the baby is in the prime position for birth. And you can also avoid an instrumental delivery if you avoid having an epidural, which makes you three times more likely to need forceps to help deliver. Again, just because your muscles aren't really engaging and pushing. Yeah, that's a good stat to know. Like, you're literally three times more likely. Um, in the hospital, the pushing stage or the second stage of labor is expected to be completed after two hours i mean that's not like across the board but most hospitals have a policy like that two hours and if the stage extends past this time in most cases labor will be considered stalled so but if the baby is not in distress you can try to wait it out as because two hours might not be enough time for the baby to move into the best position so yeah just like realize that birth might take longer than or like the pushing stage might be longer than two hours yeah and because birth isn't the same all across the board right. um having continuous support in labor has shown to create a greater chance of an intervention free birth and feeling more satisfied with your experience so if you have um support people there like a doula or your spouse or you know if you want your mom there or your best friend there like those support people are gonna help help you get through it yeah um meg what are some of your thoughts on instrumental delivery sometimes you just can't get your baby in the right position for birth like no matter what our mom did to get our little brother to turn when he was breech it just didn't work she instead had to find someone who would support her unmedicated birth preferences and help deliver him in the breech position at home so 
if you're really not wanting a c-section um instrumental delivery can be like a good option i guess i mean it's still not ideal not a great option yeah but like like an okay option yeah compared to major surgery yeah so i mean i'd like to do like everything i can before choosing to get an instrumental delivery Mm -hmm. um but you know sometimes your baby just does need help yeah what are Uh, your thoughts well as we were as we were going through this and kind of researching this i was thinking about our friend lexi who had a unmedicated birth at home and she pushed for four hours do you remember that yeah i was like shocked to hear that but that's just what her baby needed and that's what her body needed and so um and he guess what he came out like even though it took a long time that's what he needed and there's so many factors that play into this and play into the pushing stage like for example Ella like I had been having really intense contractions for like three or four days before Ella was born and so and you can like even literally see this in the pictures when she first comes out but her head was very molded she had a very big cone head and that's why that's likely why I only pushed for 18 minutes because all my body had been working and working and working all that time and then I was able to push her out quickly she was also small um okay so we're gonna move on and talk about episiotomies so a definition is an episiotomy is an incision made in the perineum which is the tissue between the vaginal opening and the anus during childbirth. So the most common reasons for an episiotomy are your baby's shoulder is stuck behind your pelvic bone, which is called shoulder dystocia, which is rare, um, 0.6 to 1.4% for babies under 9 pounds and 5 to 9% for babies over 9 pounds. And shoulder dystocia can also be helped by moving positions to be on your hands and knees and a trained medical professional can guide the shoulder into place. You can read about that in Ina May's Guide to Childbirth. They have a... She has like they have 20 like, stories. Yeah, they. she has like a protocol of like, oh, the baby's not progressing, might be shoulder dystocia. They're doing an unmedicated labor at home and so she just has this protocol of get onto your hands and knees and then she knows how to maneuver the baby like she sticks her mm-hmm. finger in and maneuvers the baby so the baby can be born. Yeah, I it's kind of interesting because shoulder dystocia is rare but like um medical professionals will be like, "Oh my gosh, oh no, the shoulder dystocia, it's time for a C-section." And yeah. it's like, "Well, how about you just like try this one simple thing of having them turn on their hands and knees and then the baby's out." Yeah. Another common reason for an episiotomy is your baby has an abnormal heart rate pattern during your delivery, so they want to just get them out quickly. Um, So they'll just cut that (laughs) episiotomy and the baby will slide right out because the opening is way bigger now. Mm -hmm. Um, And another reason is you need an instrumental vaginal delivery using forceps or or a vacuum. So again, they'll just cut you open to- Slice. Yeah, slice you open. That sounds so painful. Um, just to fit that, the instruments in. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Megan just shuddered. (laughs) Um, Some risks to episiotomy is, sorry. Some risks to episiotomies are that um, recovery is pretty uncomfortable. And um, also sometimes another risk is that sometimes the surgical incision is more extensive than a natural tear would have been um it's also possible to be infected and um you can also have scarring which can make intercourse painful um which i've actually had a close personal friend who had um scarring and it like Mm. like most of it was not like physically bad but it was just like the emotional part of being like my body is not how it originally was yeah i don't know um so some of my thoughts are that you can avoid an episiotomy i feel like so easily Mm -hmm. um and but one way that i did and i know annie did is by preparing your perineum for birth 
um, and this can easily be done by starting perennial. Is that right? I say perennial. Perennial. Um, and this can easily be done by starting perennial massages at 34 weeks and doing them like semi-often until you go into labor. So I didn't do them like daily, but I did them like once or twice a week, maybe. I did daily perennial massages oh. <laughs> from from the time that I was in my third trimester, which okay. what is that like? 28 weeks or something I did them every single night and that is like a huge reason why I think I didn't tear because I was just so stretchy (laughs) yeah yeah um and if you don't want an episiotomy put it on your birth plan we're gonna talk about birth plans in a episode soon here but um Discussing your birth plan with your doctor is important so that they are liable for going against your consent if they perform one. Um, And you need to educate your spouse about your birth plan so they can help advocate you. And getting a doula to help advocate for you is is great. Um, Also, our, our bodies can heal really well. Tearing is extremely different from getting an incision cut. Um, so if you trust your body to do what it needs to do without the interference of a doctor who's trying to rush you. So like the reason they'll, I mean, if your baby's in distress, you obviously want to help them as soon as possible. But if you're just in labor and you know, you're not progressing by some abstract timeline a doctor gives you, like tell the doctor to piss off and (laughs) just do what you need to do. Yeah. So, um, I was just recently talking to one of my friends and she was asking about tearing and I shared with her um, what I called the bread comparison. So if you picture like a piece of bread or a roll or something, if you rip that apart, you can fit the fibers of the bread together a lot easier than if you were to like cut it. Does that make sense? So like if you slice a piece of bread or if you like cut a piece of bread in half, you can't when you sew it back together, sew it yeah. back together with yeah. stitches, um, it's it, not gonna it's match not up. gonna match up as well. But if you rip it, like those little fibers can match up better, and the your skin kind of works in a similar way. Like if you tear, you can sew it back together, and it's gonna heal better. A lot better. Yeah. <laughs> and then another comparison that Meg brought up just while we were talking before the episode is the t-shirt comparison. So imagine if you just like grab your t-shirt at the neck and like try to rip it it's gonna be pretty hard but if you make a small cut and then try to rip it it's gonna rip way farther with way less effort and so an episiotomy in some ways kind of works similar where if like you cut a little bit it's gonna rip a lot more yeah whereas if you just leave the skin intact then it won't tear as much in most cases So now we're going to move on to our kind of miscellaneous section. These aren't um, like labor interventions per se, but they do typically happen pretty quickly after you give birth. Um, And some of them are like hospital policies, but just because it's hospital policy doesn't mean you need to opt for them. You can totally opt out. Um, The topics we're going to cover are Vitamin K, silver nitrate slash erythromycin, erythromycin, um, circumcision, and immediate bathing. So um, we'll start with vitamin K. And babies are born with very low levels of vitamin K, and they will need it supplemented during their first few weeks of life. Yeah, so vitamin K helps with clotting. And if babies don't receive vitamin K, they may have excessive internal bleeding. And many hospitals give newborns a vitamin K shot soon after delivery, Um, but you can also administer vitamin K through, like, oral drops. Evidence-Based Birth has a really great video series about the differences and benefits between vitamin K drops and vitamin K shots, and I I used vitamin K drops for Ella, and um, that's just kind of what my mom and my grandma recommended and what they had done in the past. And so I texted my grandma and asked her because I couldn't really find online what the for sure vitamin K, um, regimen was. And she said, and she reminded me that like, uh, uh, this is what we did with Ella, but you do 
two drop two drops a day for the first week and then two drops every week for 12 weeks and that just spaces it out so that your baby can get the amount of vitamin k that they need yeah um so i also read something recently that the shot that they give the baby in the hospital is like three thousand times the dose that they actually need well yeah because it's like this has got to get them through the next six months of their life before they start making their own vitamin k or um getting it from food and so it's like so much all at once which what if your baby's allergic or like what if it's not yeah so this is kind of just a simpler kind of a more gentle spaced out way to administer vitamin k because i actually did also have a friend who just asked about this like what about vitamin k with home birth and i was like yeah they still need it like it's a dangerous thing to have them excessively bleeding internally and so um it is needed but this is just kind of a different or gentler way to do it yeah and we did it with royal as well we did the drops um and i just had like a reminder on my phone i mean like the first few months of having like a newborn you're completely focused on them so in the first week I was just like okay at this time every single day Mm -hmm. it was part of our bedtime routine like Mm -hmm. get your drops and then every when he it was like a week from his from when he was born um I was like okay well like you're one week old now so you need your drops and oh you're two weeks old now so you need your drops and oh you're three weeks today so you do you do have to be a little bit more intentional and like a little bit more responsible about getting it but I just kept the vitamin K drops on my nightstand so I was seeing them every day and remembering like oh three more days don't we have to give her some or two more days until we have to give her some so um okay so now we're gonna talk about silver nitrate and how do you say it? Erythromycin. Erythromycin. Um, in the late 1800s... Wait, here's a story. This is okay. a story time. Okay, story time. In the late 1800s, three out of every 1,000 newborns were being blinded from neonatal conjunctivitis. For many years, they didn't know what caused this blindness, but in 1879, a German physicist discovered that the sexually transmitted infe- infection, gonorrhea, was causing the blindness. So back in the 1880s, the doctors began using silver nitrate to, pre- to prevent this neonatal conjunctivitis, which it actually worked. So that's good, like yay for modern medicine. Yeah. But, um, and doctors in the U.S. now use erythromycin, which is an antibiotic to prevent blindness from sexually transmitted diseases and today the most common cause of neonatal conjunctivitis is chlamydia which is responsible for two percent to forty percent of reported cases in the u.s the sexually transmitted disease gonorrhea now accounts for less than one percent of cases so most states mandate these eye drops but in 2018 the american academy of pediatrics actually suggested that the state should reevaluate those mandates because the eye drops aren't necessary for babies whose mothers don't have sexually transmitted diseases. Like, duh. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And we're going to include, like, our thoughts about all of these at the end of, like, the whole thing. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. Um, Now we're going to talk about circumcision, which I know is like kind of a tender topic for a lot of people just because it's been such a tradition and like you don't even think about, I mean, I know like so many people just don't even think about, they're just like, the doctor's like, hey, we're going to circumcise your son and Mm -hmm. they're just like, yep, go ahead. Yeah. Um, But circumcision is actually rare in most of the world. Um, but the circumcision rate in the U.S. is 55% of male babies. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't yeah. know that. Um, in addition, there are no medical benefits to it. It's an elective and non-essential procedure. Um, and the cir- and circumcision doesn't make the penis any cleaner or healthier. Which, if you want more information, reach out to me about that, and I can send you like the 
the little article thing. Yeah. And okay. so you can research it more. Cool. Um, moving on, we're going to talk about immediate bathing. So um, Vernix Cassiosa is a white, creamy, naturally occurring biofilm which covers the skin of the fetus during the last trimester of pregnancy. And vernix coating on the neonatal skin protects the newborn skin. Um, it's just like your baby's been soaking in the amniotic fluid <laughs> for nine months, and so they need that like they skin protection. This, yeah. yeah, so that it protects their skin and keeps it moisturized, so they don't come out looking pruney. <laughs> um, vernix facilitates the adaptation of skin in the first postnatal week if not washed away after birth. So it just kind of like helps your baby's skin transition from, from soaking to yeah, to being dry. Yep. It can help regulate the baby's body temperature, acts as a moisturizer for the baby's skin and has antimicrobial properties. Great. Yeah. So I have a lot of thoughts about all these things. So um, for vitamin K, I already said we did the drops for Royal, and one big reason is that I didn't want him to get a shot right when he's born because, like, the drops are so easy and they're not painful for him. I yeah. don't like shots, and I don't want my baby to yeah. have to go through that either. Yeah. Um, I pretty much have the same, like, point of view. Like, we yeah. used, we opted to use the vitamin K drops, and it was totally fine yeah. for us. Easy. Um, so about silver nitrate or um, the other antibiotic. <laughs> um, if you know you don't have an STI or an STD, your baby doesn't need the drops in their eyes. It stings and causes their eyes to swell up. It's a routine practice that hospital staff do just because it's easier for them and makes them more money. <laughs> um, and so, I don't know, like if you see a picture of a newborn baby, their faces like are typically really swollen and their eyes are kind of look goopy I don't know like if you've seen uh like you know some mom post about the newborn their newborn their eyes always look so goopy and like yeah. red and like pinched shut because it's like I don't know if you've ever had silver nitrate they use it as like you can put it on like cuts or like burns and stuff and it stings like so badly mm. it stings so badly so like getting that in your eyes is like Oh, sounds so painful. Which I actually read that they don't use silver nitrate yeah. in the U.S. anymore, but it's the same with an antibiotic. Like, like yeah. eye drops in brand new eyes, like, yeah, it just really doesn't make sense. Also, and it's like, not just like saline. Think, it's, yeah. It's also, think about it. Like, these eye drops are only for to prevent blindness from gonorrhea or chlamydia. So if you know for a fact that you don't have either of those. Your baby literally does not need them. Yeah, it's just a hospital policy that... But, like, yeah. if you do potentially have chlamydia or gonorrhea, like, yeah, get the eye drops. It yeah. might help your baby not go blind. That's yeah. great. Yeah. But if you don't, don't! <laughs> yeah. Um, so, with circumcision, we chose not to circumcise Royal because it is incredibly painful for the baby, which can lead to, like, lasting neurological effects. Um, there can also be serious complications during the procedure that we didn't want to risk, um, and it results in the permanent loss of healthy functional tissue unnecessarily. Um, the foreskin also protects the head of the penis, and if our boys want to get it done when they're adults, that's up to them. But it's really, like, totally not necessary. Yeah, it's also, like, I don't know, there's like a weird religious thing tied to circumcision, which is maybe why so many people just do it just to do it. But also like, think about what you're doing. You're like yeah. literally attacking their genitals. Should I read what circumcision is? Like the definition? Like, yeah, the process of it. <laughs> I'm scared. Yeah, read it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me pull it up. Yeah, I... We obviously haven't had a boy yet, and so we haven't had to, like, make the decision and go through with this, so I'm, like, really intrigued to hear what your reasoning was and stuff, but... Okay, a little bit of a trigger warning. If you're kind of, like, sensitive to, like, medical... Procedures. Procedures, maybe just, like, skip ahead 30, 30 seconds, seconds or yeah. something, okay? Um, so, circumcision is the surgical removal of the foreskin, the natural 
covering of the glands or head of the penis. In one common method, the doctor inserts a metal instrument under the foreskin to tear it from the glands, slits the foreskin, and inserts a circumcision device. The foreskin is then crushed with the device and cut away with scalpel or scissors. So, like, this is the most sensitive part of your body. The genitalia Mm -hmm. is the most sensitive, and you're literally getting it crushed and removed. Like, that sounds so terrible so if you think they're like if you just think about it for one second there are going to be lasting effects from that like yeah your baby's gonna think i'm being attacked they don't understand that it's yeah. like tradition or like religious or any of those yeah. things they're just gonna be like i'm being attacked and this hurts really bad yeah um but like yeah it's good to know that like if a your boys want to get it done that's up to them like yeah, it's their yeah. that's the other thing it's like it's their choice choice so, so let it be their choice yeah there is a big question of ethics like around circumcision recently that like you're removing part of the baby's body without their consent yeah so yeah it i think that it should be done if they want to when they're older yeah so, yeah. if you want more information about, like, the research behind that, I can send it to you. Just reach out to me. Um, yeah, so that's that about circumcision. Should we move on to immediate bathing and what our thoughts are about that? Yeah, so we waited two weeks before giving Royal his first bath. Um, when he was born, we just rubbed all the, in, all the vernix in that he had on him and just covered him with a blanket while we did skin to skin. And so it kind of soaked into me and soaked into him. And by the time they were done fixing my tears and we were back in our bed, he wasn't, like, messy or, like, gross at all. So we didn't need to, like, clean him off like they do in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when Ella first came out, she had so much vernix. Yeah. Like, you can see in the pictures that we have of, like, immediately after, it's just, like, so much vernix. Yeah. And it's not gross. It's literally just, like, kind of lotion-y. It's yeah. just smooth almost like between lotion and butter it's kind of weird to say (laughs) but you can see like in the pictures it's like kind of all over me and all over my sports bra that I was wearing and stuff but you just like rub it in just like you would lotion and um it's really healthy for the baby like their skin has been like if you think about it their skin has been soaking in water and Utah's air is literally so dry and so going from being cocooned in water to dry Utah air like she really needed that and it's nice because it's natural it's free you don't have to buy Johnson and Johnson baby lotion it's literally there for a purpose and so we just rubbed it in and yeah and I don't know in the hospital do they like when the baby comes out do they like towel them off I I mean I haven't ever been to a hospital birth but um in the videos i see it it's like the nurses are immediately like rubbing them off rub wiping any goop off and i'm like just leave it there it's fine it's just gonna get soaked into their skin yeah um so we also waited to give ella a bath ella's umbilical cord um stayed on for like 12 days and so we didn't want to bathe her with that too just because we didn't want to risk infection or anything like that so we waited like I think 12 or 13 days before we bathed her and like I mean she she got sweaty and stuff in those first 12 days and so like we wiped her off and like used a baby wipe to make sure she wasn't like dirty but even still to this day we don't bathe Ella often just because her skin her natural skin biome needs to like yeah. develop and like do it do its thing without interrupting and stripping the oils and yeah. stripping the natural um skin yeah so i'd probably give royal a bath like maybe once maybe twice a month <laughs> yeah <laughs> well because he, he doesn't get like he gets messy when he eats but we just like wash his hands and yeah. his face but like he's not getting like sweaty yeah. like he doesn't have like body hair that gets dirty like yeah he's just he's clean yeah ella now that ella's a toddler we do bathe her probably once or twice a week but i mean some things that i've read online is like give your baby a bath give your newborn a bath every night and i'm like that's way too much even if it's just water it dries their skin out yeah 
even if you put baby lotion on afterwards, like that baby lotion is just a bunch of chemicals yeah. mixed together. It's like totally. not actually what their skin needs. Yeah, so this was our second part of our interventions episode. Um, we covered a lot of stuff. Yeah. Like we've been recording for a long time. Yeah. So. Um, so all of this stuff is obviously super important for you to research on your own. We're so glad that we we're able to share this information with you guys and... Yeah, I also wanted to mention in this episode because I just recently did like the anonymous questions on my Mm -hmm. um, Instagram stories and I felt kind of called out uh, at a few of them, but one in particular said like, how do you know what happens in the hospital if you don't have hospital births? And I like, Mm -hmm. at first I was like, oh my gosh, they're so silly. It's not like it's secret. Secret, Yeah, It's not like it's secret information that... um, nobody knows besides people who go to the hospital but I did like feel a little bit called out and humbled myself a little bit and was like okay I need to be a little bit more humble and not speak like I'm an expert on this thing because we're doing our research and we spend literally we spent the past three weeks researching this all of this information so we're not like talking out of our butts but (laughs) we are not experts and so like keep that in mind we're just your friends talking about birth and Um, take everything that we say with a grain of salt. We're just kind of giving you a starting place so that you can go and do your own research yeah. and figure out what's going to work best for you and your family. But Yeah, this is definitely like a good starting point for you to then go do your own. Yeah, to know what you need to research and yeah. d- form your own decisions and opinions about these topics. Talk and to your medical professional, like your yeah, medical your provider. care provider. Yeah, talk to them about it and ask their questions yeah yeah so just just kind of a note on that Mm -hmm. and if you also if you have any questions on what we've researched like totally reach out we have links we have the stats we have the numbers so let us know what questions you have you can message us at annie nettle on instagram or at megan d lamont on instagram or you can also email us at the birth sisters at gmail.com and yeah thanks for listening yeah it was fun yeah See you soon. See ya. Bye. Bye.